Leftovers, Season 3, Episode 5. It's a Matt, 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 Matt world is over, but we're just getting started talking about it here on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. My name is Josh Wiggler before midnight, but after midnight, my name is Frazier. I've just become him, and so has Antonio Mazzaro. He has also just become Frazier. You're not supposed to say his name, Josh. I, I, can you hear the blues of call and toss salad and scrambled eggs? Is that feel, what's happening here? I feel comfortable saying it because like, I'm not on that boat right now. I can't imagine anybody from Frasier's Pride is listening to this podcast. And it's actually not after midnight yet, so I'm allowed to make the joke. You don't think Niles is listening? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> what about Lilith? Listening. Yeah. What What a crazy, crazy. Uh, HBO loves its orgy scenes, but this was this was really something special. Well, anytime you have a show that in the credits, <laughs> in the credits, the end credits of the episode, there's a credit for, and I'm just gonna work a little blue here vigorous hand job guy yes. in the credits yes that's, that's when you know of... you've crossed a line i think which character was vigorous hand job guy i don't remember vigorous hand job guy to be honest with you i think we're gonna have... <laughs> well, listen if we don't have a satisfying ending to this show the answer is damon lindelof <laughs> that's like a like a really i don't know i was gonna go somewhere else uh, oh vigor- do you know any dirty jokes josh why don't you share them vigorous hand job guy fietti um oh dude, donkey what, balls yeah donkey what, sauce. Is, what is the filthiest joke you know antonio or are we is this all just one big filthy joke we can't i there is no chance that i will say that on the podcast uh, alex kidwell uh who is going to edit this podcast and make sure it gets up for everyone uh, the podcast that is will yes. uh will burn me with that so no chance but no uh matt apparently can work really blue josh uh, i guess sometimes when you're in a profession you know jokes about that profession i hope that's why yeah. you knew that joke yeah, yeah. Uh, for this episode, so as many of you know, uh, my day job is I'm a writer with The Hollywood Reporter, and I was lucky enough to actually get to interview Christopher Eccleston about this episode. And I, yes. asked, him, I asked him that question of, where do you think Matt got that from? He's like, you know, he probably heard all of the terrible jokes in, like, seminary school or, like, some some bully when he was a kid must have heard it. So, like, he, he knew this from his childhood. And then he said, but you'd really have to ask Damon Lindelof because I think that's really his. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was a, <laughs> I thought it was a pretty funny joke, personally. <laughs> yeah, well, you didn't grow up Catholic, no, but uh, I it doesn't—it doesn't really matter. Uh, it got him on the boat. I think Lori was about to tell the eats, shoots, and leaves grammar joke about pandas, which let me tell you, that's not getting you anywhere. It's, this is certainly not a joke that's going to laugh your way into an orgy. Was that so, really what she was about to do? You think? I don't know. I mean, maybe like that's the panda walks into a bar joke that I know. So who I feel, knows? I feel like Lori Garvey has uh, has some dirty jokes that she can tell. Most likely. She's probably heard a lot. I mean, Patty was her patient. That's exactly what I was just thinking. Is like she probably heard some nasty things during those <laughs> sessions. We know. Patty had a penchant for describing the things that uh, her husband was into at Neil. Uh, That's and all right. Of the, all of the Neil acts that were in play. Uh, so was Patty... he aggressive handjob guy, Neil? Oh, boy. Let's just let's just lay off of aggressive handjob okay. guy, shall we? Josh, sure. we're burying the lead. I think aggressive handjob guy was in a submarine at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, there was a lot to talk about in this Yeah, episode. how do we find a place to start? Can you start with some business? Can you tell people, if they want to hear our ramblings about future podcasts, how they can do that? Yeah, how about we start with some business right up front? Just you- like this episode did. <laughs> just the business end yes. right up front. 
<laughs> Indeed. All right, so let's give you some of that business, different kind of business right oh, now. We want to give you the links to subscribe to this podcast. Make sure you never miss an episode. Postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes or postshowrecaps.com slash feed slash leftovers. We do two leftovers podcasts per week. We do our Sunday night podcast right after the episode. We give you our takes. Uh, and we also do midweek feedback shows. I believe Wednesday-ish probably is when we're going to be recording this one. Antonio and I, will uh, we will nail that down off the air. Uh, but get your feedback into us in a variety of ways. We have an email address, leftovers at postshowrecaps.com. We have a feedback form at postshowrecaps.com slash feedback. And you can tweet at us. I'm at Round Howard. Antonio's at AC Mazzaro. Uh, you can leave comments on postshowrecaps.com as well, and we will get those in our feedback document. It's a very elaborate document, I also will say. It is. It's the Magna Carta of podcast uh, feedback structures. Uh, this week was 11 pages. We had a lot of really good feedback about the midway point in this season, and really none of it had anything to do with what we saw tonight, which is great. Like, this is a show that has a lot of masters to service, and I don't mean in the vigorous way. Uh, so there are a lot of things that have to be done. Uh, and there, we, we knew that the show addresses these character-by-character things. We already saw... A Kevin Senior episode uh, this year. We thought we would probably be getting a Matt episode, and uh, the the title "It's a Matt 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 World" kind of gives it away. That off. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's also yeah. it's like the great annual tradition here on the Leftovers, right? There has to be a Matt episode. There were three Matt episodes on this show, uh, at least, unless there's another one coming up. I don't imagine that we've got the storytelling real estate for such an episode. Uh, but the Matt what if ep- the finale was all Matt? Oh my god, <laughs> we were following the wrong savior the entire time, Joshua. No, I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty happy with the Matt episode we got. I think that, you know, the first Matt episode, there's some people who are not, like, super huge fans, and that was still, you know, when The Leftovers was figuring itself out. I would put it towards the bottom of the power rankings of Leftovers episodes just because I think everything from episode six of season one and onward has to beat everything that came before. That's my personal feeling anyway. Um, But that being said, I think even that episode has a lot of value in it. Certainly, um, uh, No Room at the End was the season two episode i believe is what it was called yes. uh was the matt episode and that was very memorable with uh with matt at ending the episode naked in sonic screwdriver yes yes indeed sonic screwdriver indeed and almost a return of the sonic screwdriver in his third and final matt centric episode as he was very close to becoming fraser and I'm still not entirely clear on the mechanics of all no, that. No, me neither. <laughs> was that a suction pump? Was there what was going on there? I was don't that know. a receptacle? Was that a tail? I don't uh, really understand. I don't know, but a lot happened and usually in a Matt episode, as I think that we've noted in the past, or at least you and I have talked off the air about it, it's like there's always like a journey that is involved with Matt and it usually does not end in the way that he expects it to. Uh, rarely a happy ending in this regard for <laughs> oh i see what you did there for matt and this episode really no different you you said like where do we start because there's so much to talk through sure there's the naked nuclear submarine scene that kicks this thing off which was a wild moment of course but there's also the fact that dude matt's dying yeah matt is that's dying. pretty big that's pretty big and we probably should have pegged that or nailed it down a little more directly uh, when we've talked a lot about him being sick throughout his symptoms are presenting in a way that didn't strike uh, as leukemia. Uh, we saw him 
in the cold chills. He's probably getting a lot of side effects from whatever medicine he's taking, nosebleeds, things like that. Uh, it, he isn't really clearly uh, wrecked with leukemia at this point. Uh, he may be trying to go through treatment, and we're seeing some aspects of that. But it does seem like it's timed out pretty well with the end of the world as Matt knows it. Uh, and maybe that's why he's assigning so much value to the things that are happening in this life, uh, in the, the world of the story. It, it's important for him to write the book of Kevin. It's important for him to have a legacy. It maybe is even more important than his family. And maybe he's okay with his family going away because he doesn't want to put them through whatever he's experiencing with his illness. So that is definitely happening, unfortunately, for Matt. And it certainly colors, I think, the interactions that Matt has throughout this episode. Yeah, and colors as we're them saying, blood red. Oh, boy. Yeah. The Book of Daniel, uh, which I believe Daniel uh, was the Christian Thrones of the Lion. So uh, there's a lot of that uh, symbolism really just right on the nose there, the bloody nose. Uh, and yeah, that is happening. He meets God in this episode, Josh. Finally. Or at least, uh, <laughs> yeah, finally. We've all been waiting for God to show up. Here we are. That was another thing that he talked about in the interview, too, that I thought was a really uh, great way of stating. It's like he always felt like it would be fair for Matt to finally get God in the chair, like to finally get that moment to sit down with God and be like, why are you doing this to me? You know, Why are you doing this to me? I, yeah, I think that I think that's really, really great. And clearly it depends on your interpretation. Is David Burton God? I don't really think so. But for the purposes of that conversation and what that represents, figuratively at least, metaphorically, and that has always been the leftovers of secret sauce, uh, which uh, with the context nope. of this whole episode. Nope, nope. Just, I just didn't even want you to say anything. <sighs> just keep going. Keep going. Sorry, keep sorry, going, sorry. All right, going. resuming the thought. I'm returning to the thought. Yes. Uh, what was that? Where was I going? Where was I going with the thought? It's I just think- that Matt has always wanted to. He, Matt has always <laughs> yes. wanted to confront God like this is a chance for Matt to meet his maker and it's funny because I think that there is a lot of Matt not believing anything about this David Burton story he's angry because he feels like David Burton is blaspheming uh, and full of blasphemy like he's thinking that that is ultimately what's happening he gets him in the chair he wheels him up to the other deck he's got the axe he's got all these things and then for whatever reason just the obtuse very rote one or two word replies from David Burton it really created Matt this feeling of maybe there's something to this and you can say that maybe Matt is so desperate to believe in a savior to need to find this search for meaning that he's willing to believe that even this man is God uh, so it's hard to think of that without contextualizing the way he's treating Kevin like yeah. if Matt's so desperate that he is thinking that David Burton's a blas uh, a blasphemer. He puts him in a chair. He then, in the middle of a conversation, starts assigning some potential value to what's going on. Uh, that's how needy Matt is. So yeah, he definitely always wanted to get God on the phone. As a priest, I'm sure most people feel that way. I'm sure most people of faith who preach the word of God and who have to act with great faith to that word of God uh, with a silent reply, ultimately. Uh, Martin Scorsese just made a very powerful film about silence, the silence that you're going to get if you're speaking to God, even if you have the deepest faith. That's what Matt has experienced his whole life. Uh, He has searched for meaning. It is, in his mind his search for meaning and desire to talk to God that gave him the leukemia in the first place. Uh, the story goes that Nora Durst, his younger sister, was born, and Matt was very jealous. Matt tells the story, by the way, at the beginning of episode three in season one, uh, two boats and a helicopter. He, he is telling the story about how, as a young boy, he was very jealous of his new sister and prayed for some attention, and then he got some leukemia in return, and that got him all the attention he ever wanted. So he truly believes that the way God spoke to him was giving 
something of a disease. So, of course, he's ready to believe that David Burton, this horrible man in this wheelchair who legit murdered a dude on the boat, um, is actually God. Uh, but then the ending is so fantastic, right? Because that's definitely not God getting eaten by a lion. Uh, lion and God are uh, image that are linked to images that are linked to C.S. Lewis and Narnia and all of that. Uh, it is not. A, there are many other instances where lions are referenced uh, in connection with Christianity uh, or religion. So there's a lot of symbolism there when he sees this false god being smote down by that lion at the end. And I love what Matt says. Like that's the guy I was talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's the guy how I was great about. is that? How great is that for the end of the episode? Well, you know, there's a, a lot to talk through about. You know what you just touched on. I think one of the key things here, first of all, one of my favorite lines in the episode, there's so many great lines in this episode, really, really, really great episode, uh, but I love when Matt has, quote unquote, God in the chair, and David Burton denies that he is Jesus' father. You're denying paternity? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was just... Mary's word against mine. <laughs> yeah, it was just spectacular, and the whole, like, Jesus had a twin brother and everything was just really, really wonderful. Um you're but, denying paternity? <laughs> you're denying paternity? But there's, a, there's you know, the turn in the conversation when he takes credit for the departure. That seems to be the moment where right. Matt buckles, and that seems to be the moment where Matt is uh is really wondering like is this why you you know you know gave me you gave me the cancer again is this why you you you've condemned me to die basically and also david burton saying to him things like you never did any of this for me you did it for yourself you did it because you thought i was watching i wasn't i'm not judging you i'm still not judging you uh and by the end of it all there is the moment where, depending upon your interpretation, Matt is watching God get eviscerated by a lion, uh, and then he doesn't really seem to care that much. Uh, there's the moment where he's at the edge of the boat as they're finally getting, uh, they're finally starting to pull into Melbourne, and the captain says, uh, that "We'd love to have you go down to the station if you don't have any pressing business in Melbourne, do you?" And Matt says, "No, I don't." And this is a man at the start of this episode who is desperate to get to Australia at all costs, has found out that Kevin has gone there. The sudden departure's seventh anniversary is coming up swiftly, and Matt firmly believes that Kevin needs to be in miracle for that. Uh, and it's going to take a miracle to get Kevin back home, considering the naked nuclear submarine incident that has grounded flights across the world, or at least in that part of the world. Uh and Matt goes through this wild adventure to do exactly that, to save his, you know, to save his savior figure. And by the end of this whole excursion, doesn't seem like he's very much believing in any of it anymore. Yeah, but Matt's the kind of guy who, even though five minutes before that, it says he doesn't have any more pressing business in Melbourne, right? Like he says, no, I can, uh, I can talk about David Burton. I don't have any pressing business in Melbourne. Like he's, he's that guy, right? But then he sees the false savior get smote or smited. I'm not sure what the form of the verb is by that lion in front of his face after that person had told him, stay on the boat. Like, there's that's the kind of guy who was assigning value to birds, to pigeons, to all to false prophets, to all these things. You don't think that the way that that all plays out at the end of the episode doesn't restore Matt's faith to an extent? I think that it certainly could. Um, 
But there's still something really melancholy about it, I felt like. I thought well, that- yeah, because he's just told them that he's dying. Like, he has come clean about this very specific thing that he's had on his chest, right? Like, he has brought that out, and that is a major moment for him. And so that definitely seems like a guy who has zero Fs given anymore about the way he's going to represent himself. And yet, like, after that, we see the lion mauling, and I do feel like that's the kind of thing that, for a guy like Matt, will renew um, any kind of fervor that might might have been lacking after this crazy boat trip. That's very interesting. I didn't have that reaction. I didn't interpret it that way, but I can certainly see it from that perspective. Uh, I can certainly see that this is like, oh, sweet. Okay, so that guy really wasn't God. He just got eaten alive by a lion. Um, so that's pretty, you know, very queer proof that this man is not what he said he was. I could see that interpretation, but I don't know, maybe, and I guess it's hard to say, like, you would feel joy over watching something like that, but I feel I feel like maybe, like, a little bit more of a reaction I would have expected. At the very least, I think it's intentionally vague right now. Yes. I, at the very least, I think it's subject, you know, what, what do we still have faith in Matt's faith right now is kind of a question that's on this show. Uh, do you, so do you think that he, you know, gets off this boat and first order of business Matt's all the way back in on the Kevin thing like is that where you're feeling this is going or do you feel like he's still kind of you know where he is in a few minutes before David Burton gets ripped apart where he's like I've got no pressing business where do you think Matt is leaving the boat well what's fascinating about that is we had a similarly vague ending at the end of episode three when Kevin Sr. says you just got the wrong Kevin like so if that was the wrong Kevin was Kevin Sr. at that point saying he's the right Kevin or was Kevin Sr. by that point at the end of that episode convinced that Junior was actually the right Kevin and therefore we should we should give all, go all in on Kevinism when Senior was rejecting Kevinism throughout the episode. It's vague at the end of that episode. And I think similarly with Matt, he is about to, presuming they make it off the boat and find their way to Senior and Junior, he is about to find himself face-to-face with the craziest person on the show, like somebody whose fervor and insanity has topped Matt's at every turn, that being Kevin Senior. Somebody who, when Kevin Senior was in the depths of his craziness, uh, he turned to Matt. And someone who Matt has sheltered and someone who Matt, when he's in his greatest times of need, has pivoted to. So there is already the very interesting relationship between the two of them. And senior writing off Kevinism was very upsetting to Matt. It caused Matt to say F you to Kevin senior, right? Like that happened. So now we reemerge from all of this fog from the incidents in the desert and everything that happened with Senior and the incidents on this boat and everything that happened with Matt. And we have these two characters on a collision course, one of whom has always been in on Kevinism, the other of whom has not been. Now, if Matt's out and Senior is in and the shoes on the other foot, does that change the way either of them look at this situation? Does it change Matt if Senior is all in now and he wasn't before? I'm not sure. I'm interested in tracking that because I do think that there are similar vagaries in play there. It's also interesting that David Burton gets killed, right? I think we agree that David Burton is dead. I think by he's the dead. I think that guy's dead. <laughs> it, would, it would take a lot to bring that man back. Although he may have already died once and come back. So I what's suppose, another one? What's I another suppose. lion mauling when you fell and broke your neck uh, in, a, in a mountain climbing accident or whatever? But uh, but if assuming David Burton's dead, it sounded to me like the uh, the lion got harambeed there, who was their own mm, their own yeah. totem. Uh, yeah. that was should we now off should screen. we now call it getting frasiered? Uh, he got frasiered. Yeah, he got frasiered. So that was their totem. That their totem is gone. David Burton is gone. Kevin is the only one left standing. And 
I don't know if this incident with the submarine, because it happens in this episode. It happens at the beginning. So I don't know if this incident with the submarine is going to tie into the, everything that Matt is talking about with the end of the world. Is this going to bring about some kind of nuclear war? Uh, does this cause a flood in some way? Does, was, the, was the strike something that's going to cause a tsunami or something like that? We don't 100% know, right? Uh, we've had all this flood analogy or mythology. We've had all these things happening and symbolism. Now we have an at-sea nuclear incident, which certainly could cause something like that to happen, uh, a tidal wave or um, maybe some kind of attack on, uh, on uh, some kind of dam or, or I, I don't know, uh, something to that effect that could cause a, a, great, uh, a great flood. And if that's the case, a guy like Matt, I just don't see how he's going to run from that. It's an interesting epiphany because he has the epiphany with David Burton, and David Burton, in the middle of that epiphany, is very, and I don't want to spoil anything here, so I'm going to talk about the Christopher Nolan movie, The Prestige. So if you haven't seen that movie, I'm apologizing, but I'm going to talk about it. And we're going to get into spoiler territory from that film? Yes. Okay, so yes, this is like really adequate spoiler warning because The Prestige, I love that movie. And even though it came out more than 10 years ago, we want to give you all the spoiler space you could possibly have. So turn off the podcast if you haven't listened to it. Or like hop forward. We want to call it like two minutes? Two minutes. Hop forward two minutes. And I'm going to look at the timer. We're going to talk about this for two minutes. All right, and go. And in the prestige, the ending, right, is revealed to be that it is not a it is not a magic. There is there is science and faith in play at the end of the prestige. And it is very much that there is a twin with one of the characters and one of the characters is playing a twin role and is using his twin to pull off everything that doesn't seem explainable. Dude, and another what the hell? I haven't seen the movie yet. Oh, get out of here. You just said it was one of your favorites. <laughs> Another care. I'm going to turn you into vigorous hand job guy with my fist. Whoa, and I'm talking geez. about your face. Talking Yikes. about your face. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. God. I'm I don't so know glad. what I mean by that metaphor, but we're going to stop. We're not going to stop down oh and explain. Oh, my God. It. I'm so glad that half the podcast listeners uh, skipped forward two minutes. And so ultimately, ultimately. How much time a- left on the timer? I don't know. I lost track. There okay. is a twin because of you. There is a twin in play there. And David Burton is saying, ta-da. That is the prestige of his trick. When he, when he cures Matt, he says, ta-da, like he's free. Josh, was this actually David Burton that died, or was it his brother? Brendan Fitzpatrick wants to know. Was it actually David Burton who died, or was it his brother? Does he have a twin brother who was killed? Is that oh, what happened here? I, Again, once again, just a thing that I haven't even thought about. Um, like the theoretically, quote-unquote, David Burton died, but did he really die? Hmm... I mean, he does talk about Jesus having a twin brother. Yes, and that's a you know that brings up life of Brian, Jesus's neighbor, Jesus having a twin brother. That's what I'm saying. Like a lot of these things, and and we'll stop talking about the prestige now specifically. But a lot of these things that don't seem explainable, you can pull the curtain back, right, and you can get an explanation. And I think that is what Matt has always struggled with, and that's the central underpinning of this show. Uh, the uh, the central underpinning being, yes, there are things that seem inexplicable in the moment, but sometimes. You you pull the curtain back and you look further and ta-da, there's something else going on. Maybe it's a machine that's, uh, that's doing some work there. Maybe there's something else in play. But maybe it's science, maybe it's not. And, and David Burton is talking about having a twin uh, and, and Jesus having a twin and that the Jesus story. Maybe there's just a twin. We know there's no twin for Kevin Garvey. But I think it's interesting that when we had talked a ton about David Burton on this show, we had talked, we, we saw the man in the tower in episode one of season two is addressing a letter to David Burton that he gives to Michael to mail to him. We also see in a middle of the season episode in season two, David Burton is d- discussed on the television. Like there's this guy in Australia who came 
came back to life. And we hear a little bit about Emerge from a Cave. We see that on a TV in the background. So that is what we know about David Burton, the story. But we've also seen this character on the show before, right? And the problem is, where we've seen this character before seems solely in Kevin Garvey's dreams, right? Like, or his afterlife experiences, which seems a little bit inexplainable uh, or unexplicable. It just doesn't seem likely that Kevin would have seen David Burton at the hotel both of those times, and yet he did. So what's going on here, Josh? Does this confirmation that David Burton is actually... The, the David Burton part of Kevin's dreams or, or visions is actually supernatural. Or did Kevin maybe see this guy on TV once and therefore he shows up in his, in his visions? Well, one of the things that we were talking about on the feedback show recently was uh, our, our good buddy Rob Sesternino's assertion that if we ever see another character like go to the hotel. Yes, the prophecy of Rob. The prophecy of Rob states that that's the show jumping the shark. And I don't I don't know that I fully agree with that take. Uh, but that being said, this could be a situation like that. Like, who's to say that Kevin is the only person who has access to that world? Why couldn't a guy like David Burton potentially have access to that world as well? So it would have had to have involved David Burton, though, dying and going to the in-between, just like Kevin visiting the hotel involved. You would, like, you would think so, but we just we don't know enough about that universe to say, like, definitively that's the only entrance. You know, like, okay. if this is a guy who has some other special attributes, maybe he's able to get there in some other way. So maybe the, maybe the bathroom on that ferry is just a, a yeah. portal to the hotel? Yeah, that's the portal. Or, like, every time he kills somebody, he gets to go there, and that's why he had to throw that poor schmuck mohawk overboard interesting that really that was a porsche mohawk found by a fishing vessel like what a ignominious ending why do you think he did that why did he why did he go to murder town on that guy i don't know what's going on with david burton first of all i think the most interesting thing about david burton is we had assigned some mystical value to david burton i don't think we thought like oh my gosh david burton like he can come back to life but we thought we had said there's another person on this show who we've seen, we think, at the hotel twice, who is also independently rumored to be a messianic-type figure who can come back to life. This is the David Burton guy. And when we meet him, what we really find out is that his whole story, as the captain tells it, seems like it rests on the testimony of one person, his friend, who said David Burton broke his neck in a hunting accident and was dragged into a cave and left for dead, and they came back and he was alive. So the whole thing, Burtonism, rests on the word of one person? Like, that is a little crazy to me, and it certainly makes me feel a little crazy for assigning potential spiritual value to what could be like a Bigfoot prank, like two guys saying, oh, I saw the Jersey Devil. Uh, like, we're just making stuff up now. And that's all we've got for Burtonism is this belief that his friend killed him or saw him die, dragged his body into a cave and then came back and he was alive. For all we know, his friend was on peyote or God's tongue or something crazy, didn't check for a pulse, didn't realize that I mean, there's a lot to we have to vest in one person's story for us to believe in Burtonism to begin with. And yet David Burton himself seems like a real jerk. He seems very surly. He carries a card around that he hands out, and the card's really shitty. It's just brash and blasphemous, as Matt points out, and all these things that are just snotty and wrong. Uh, he doesn't kill Matt when I thought very sure. I, I thought there was a good chance that David Burton gets out of that wheelchair, picks up the axe, and chops Matt in the neck. Like, I really thought we could get there in this episode. And yet this David Burton just seems unconcerned with things and is murdered. 
murdering people. So he just seems like a bad dude. I don't know if he was a bad dude pre-representing himself as the savior or if we're meant to take this as a parable because he does express a little bit of regret, right? We hear a little bit like, oh, well, I didn't realize it was all going to happen this way. Or that's the, that's the tale that's told about David Burton. Like, he wants to keep a low profile. He didn't realize it would get so out of hand. And yet here we are. So maybe, maybe the, the parable of David Burton or the story of David Burton is that if you represent yourself as the savior, crazy people are going to find you, track you down, and do crazy things like we saw with Grace with Kevinism a couple of episodes ago. So maybe it's the weight of Burtonism that causes David Burton to be a dick. I don't have a better explanation at this point. But do we think that the story for that guy is done? You know, we brought him back onto the show this week. He is somebody who figured into season two uh, mostly in passing, but then you start seeing this guy in the International Assassin episode. He's the one who urges Kevin to do karaoke isn't that right yeah he is he's the guy who's the bridge keeper in international assassin as you point out and the karaoke guy in the hotel but that it is really 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 i can't stress this enough really uh worth re-watching the bridge scene with this guy and kevin in international assassin because it is kevin with young patty on the way to the well and basically david burton is telling him like you can kill yourself uh, or you can go forward. And Kevin's like, well, why would I want to kill myself? And the guy says, you know, because going forward means killing a child. And there is so much connected with the the discussion of the machine. And multiple times in this episode, we had the story of Abraham and Isaac mentioned, Josh, which, as we talked about on the feedback show, is very much about a man of faith being asked with what he believes being asked by God to sacrifice his adult son. And it certainly seems like we're worried that Kevin Garvey Sr. might be interested in doing that to Junior, and all these Abraham and Isaac references are going to be a little too prophetic. And yet here we are with what's happened uh, in everything with David Burton, where in International Assassin on the bridge, he's warning Kevin, when you kill a child, it's going to fundamentally change you. Yeah. And I'm not sure that we've fully seen the... The backup on that, like, I'm not sure we've fully seen the, the negative or the, the warning way that this has fundamentally changed Kevin. Oh, you don't think so? I mean, I think that I could not disagree with that more. I mean, well, Ke- Kevin has is so fundamentally changed from the whole experience that happened. But I guess not in a bad way is what I'm saying. We haven't seen the chickens come home to roost in a negative way. Is that is that definitely the read? Is it like yes, every, yes. everything is going to change in a bad way? David Burton is saying you would rather kill yourself than live with the results of what happens if you kill this kid. That is absolutely what he's that that's the scenario he's presented to Kevin. He puts a noose around his neck, drags him to the edge of the bridge. There's already other ropes hanging off that bridge so he presents the scenario to him like you don't really want to go through with this now you could see that as a test but it certainly comes off as a warning and there is that uh lost in translation moment where he whispers something to kevin that we we are not privy to but it does definitely fundamentally come off as a warning nothing else yeah but i could see that also being like if you if you go forward with this, it's going to change you and you are going to have the weight of the world on your shoulders. Well, that's what I'm getting at. Right. Like we haven't seen that yet. Really? We've seen it if that has affected Kevin. But, but we that's, haven't... that's where we're driving. You know, well, that's, that's th- what I'm getting at. Listen to me, brother. That's what I'm getting <laughs> I'm at. trying to like... talk to I'm on the podcast as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm getting at. Like, yeah, but I'm just I don't think that that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Right. Which is that maybe that's what happened for David Burton. Like maybe 
David Burton in this episode represents the warning that David Burton on the bridge and international assassin gave Kevin in that David Burton in this episode, maybe he and his friend wanted to play a silly little prank, or maybe they were going through with the sort of monster or creature hoax that many people have gone through with in the past. And yet he now has to live with the results of that. People coming up to him and saying, are you God? People ignoring him. People asking him all these questions such that he's got a card with the pre-printed responses. He ducks his head down when he goes into the boat, doesn't want to talk to anybody, stays on the upper deck and stays away from himself. Who knows if the person he shoved off the boat was somebody who wouldn't leave him alone, who was a crazy person like Matt, who was demanding salvation, who asked to be thrown off the boat. We have no clue. What I'm saying is it's very possible that we just haven't seen the baggage, uh, the true baggage from the International Assassin Hotel come home to roost with Kevin yet. And my concern would be, as we bring this back to the Abraham and Isaac of it all, my concern would be what we're going to see with that. Are these people in Kevin's life who really think that Kevin is the savior and are going to kill him as a result of that? Yeah. Like, that's the worst case scenario. And in that regard, David Burton is very much a warning sign. Like, and seeing him in this episode, is his story done? Is what the question that ultimately you asked that led to this is, is his story done? Maybe not thematically, right? right because if it, we yeah. see that play out with Kevin, but narratively, maybe we've seen the last of David Burton. I hope someone gets his hat. <laughs> I was surprised that hat didn't say MAGA on it. I'm not going to lie. Like, that was a big red hat. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Make Burton great again. The other, know? the other thing too is like if you're trying to be inconspicuous, I don't know that that like red hat is doing you any favors. Like that's like just like a big glowing sign of like, oh, what's that guy look like underneath there? Ah, David Burton. It's God. Yeah, and and, and now no offense to uh, it's a very David loud Burton. hat. He looked a little uh, heftier than he has in previous iterations of he looked, Burton. He looked tough, man. Like, well, I that's would, what I'm saying. I yeah. think that there's a, there's a chance that he's really that wearing the— swole, huh? Yeah, he's swole. That's a good <laughs> use of swole, Josh. He's really, uh, he's really ultimately wearing, the, he's wearing the, the effects of being God. Like, heavy hangs the head, right? Yeah, like, that totally. Is, I do think that that's the David Burton parable, and we see how that I ultimately that. plays out. Yeah, yeah. we brilliant. see how that ultimately plays out. Like he doesn't have to be the guy who is eaten by the lion. He could just be a guy exiting the ship. But it is the fact that the police are calling after him that causes him to run, that causes him to be in the area on the other side of the fence where the lion is. And he's only getting called by the police because he shoves someone off the boat. So it stands to reason that if he shoves someone off the boat because it was somehow related to his crazy David Burton having to act like he's God all the time stuff. I mean, look, in this episode, he murdered a guy but we also saw a crazy fervent religious type tie him to a wheelchair and threaten to menace and murder him with an axe like is this not something that this guy probably deals with all the time and that's what i'm worried about with kevin garvey we really haven't seen the chickens come home to roost on that because kevinism is localized it's not on the news but we've already seen at least one person murdered in the name of kevinism we have all this abraham and isaac stuff i just feel like the david burton elements can be really you got it you can't have both of these messianic figures exist on a show and not compare the two and when you compare the two it's it certainly doesn't seem like David Burton is getting a lot of good out of being David Burton. Yeah, although I, I love the card. I, I know that like yeah, there's there's so much on there that's so inappropriate, but I just love the move of the card of just like, yeah, yeah, yes, I'm God. Here's all the stuff. Like, <laughs> stop asking me about it. I just yeah. thought, I thought that was great. Apparently, he's also just like bros with the captain. 
it triggered Matt though. Like Matt was not pleased with that card. So it is certainly a, there should be a trigger warning at the beginning. But yeah, he just he stays in Tanzania. He has a little cabin that he lives in. Not anymore. Well, not anymore. Now he dies in right. We've yeah. we've had this. We've had a lot of theorizing about what's going on with the Sarah Durst scene at the end of the first episode, and we speculated a lot. Like Kevinism goes sideways. She's not happy about it, so she's denying any connection to it, and she's living off the grid to avoid any connection to it in Australia in the future at some point like that's the general interpretation i think we've stuck with the most and if that's the case we haven't seen kevinism go truly awry but here we see burtonism go truly awry like we see in one episode the rise and fall of burtonism and i think that that is something we should not leave behind as we go into the last three episodes as we're talking about what's going to happen with all these people who do or do not assign some value to kevin garvey and i think it's great that there are people that are on both sides of that equation and we already see the conflicts stemming uh, from a lot of these issues with Matt and Lori, and we know they're there between Matt and Nora. So it's great that we have oppositional figures, and we have figures like John and Michael who maybe are a little bit in the middle, like they were inclined to believe in Kevinism for various reasons, but they're being pulled in different directions. I really like that we're setting up the this conflict. I just don't like how well it does or doesn't bode for Kevin Jr. Well, I really like the fact that this story took place on a boat, but it very, you know, the way that we're talking about it, it may as well be you know the moment on the bridge again like the cautionary tale on the bridge is this moment in the story potentially serving as a real warning shot of like be very worried about your boy kevin garvey you know be very 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 nervous about where he is sailing yeah um great interpretation I, i really love that our messianic figure just got got, uh, and he got eaten by a lion. It uh, got which... messy. Those antics got messy pretty quick. <laughs> yes, we had some real messy antics, yeah. All uh, over that boat, really. All really. over that boat, really. Well, yeah, good point. There was very vigorous uh, what was happening there. Uh, oh, man. Can we just – what – of all the people, like, I just – it's so hilarious to me that we – they flew to Australia in a freaking cargo plane, Josh. Like, how ridiculous is that? Like, they're – talk about your not-plush accommodations. Like, they were flying air uh, – air – Whatever the guy's name was on the shield, like uh, yeah, yeah, Acevedo, like, right? Air Acevedo, yeah, it's no bueno. Like yeah. uh, it is, it is, uh, it's great. I love the moment when Laurie is basically saying all these negative things about Matt's belief systems and Matt's god god feelings, and just then they hit this major section of turbulence. The look on Matt's face is just gold in that. Oh moment. yeah, yeah, he's very proud in that moment. Proud Papa in that scene. Yeah. Uh, I I would love to use this as a way to start talking about uh, where is the world of the left right now i mean from the beginning of this season we have been you know on notice that the seventh anniversary of the sudden departure is coming up swiftly uh more and more with each passing episode each passing day we are building towards something uh something big is either going to happen or at least that's the the culture of the world right now and it's gotten so intense in fact that a nuclear bomb just went off. What is the state of the world of the leftovers right now as we are cruising through episode five? <sighs> We're on a collision course. Like, yeah, as you're pointing out, there are all these, even if you're not religious, there are all these signs and things happening, which uh, if you just take them in the context of this show, not in the context of what they mean in the, in the context of the show, but just in the context of the show, as I said, 
We already had someone murdered in the name of Kevinism. We saw another false savior, or maybe even not false, just another argued savior, get eaten by a lion. We literally had a nuclear incident when there was a guy at the airport with Nora warning that there was a nuclear incident, and he had to get to he had to get on the plane because there was going to be a nuclear incident. And we saw that. Like there are all of these warning signs. Someone is literally building an ark. People are having orgies, like the end of the world is coming. There are a lot of very bad poor a lot of very bad omens. And I think it would be really silly for us to ignore them because now we've got essentially our major players are all in Melbourne, Australia. And as I said, they're at various degrees of uh, opposition on the spectrum here of what is Kevinism, is Kevinism real, is it not real, and all of that. And there are at least two of them, uh, one of whom is dying, uh, one of whom certainly has mental illness issues, and one of whom is now the person, Matt, uh, Kevin Sr., who's, who has his mental illness issues, is living with a woman who just murdered someone in the name of uh, faith. And there are all these fervent people. And then there are people like Lori Garvey who fights back against these things, but she herself has caused death and murder and destruction in the form of her actions with the guilty remnant, in the form of her actions in season two. All of the people, all of the pieces on this board, essentially, uh, John Murphy himself, also a very violent person, burning down things, tried to kill Kevin, tried to probably kill Virgil. We don't really still know the full reasons why on that. We probably will never find out. But we have all of these very passionate people, all of whom have caused a lot of harm to other people at various points. And they're all intersecting at this time when the lot, a lot of people in the world are being triggered, nuclear triggered, nuclear level triggered. I just don't think that that bodes well for the happiness level at the end of the season. I do feel like you are correct in that you've said we're going to get an ending that is at at the very least bittersweet because that's the Lindelof romantic at heart way. I agree with that, but I feel like it's going to get pretty sloppy before we get there. I feel like some bad things are going to happen. And as we've said, if you're going to talk about Kevinism, I feel like the Savior has to die, and we just haven't seen that happen yet. The Savior has to ascend, has to depart, has to disappear from the story for it to really take root and have legs. And if we're going to believe that that happens, I just think all of these things line up very negatively for Kevin. Can you read The State of the Leftovers positively, Josh? I'm curious, because what we're talking about is my interpretation. And as we've seen through this episode and others, one person's interpretation of facts and events can vary greatly from another person's. I'm interpreting a lot of the signs from the season in a negative way. Are you interpreting things differently or do you feel like uh, we're also headed in a negative direction? No, I think I, I hold to my, my feeling that I think that we're going towards a bittersweet ending, a happy ish ending is what I've been calling it. Um, I still think that we're there. I still think that we're on course for that. And I, think, but are we going to get darker before we get yeah, there? Totally. Totally. What did Harvey Dent say, Antonio, to talk about another Christopher Nolan film? <laughs> I, I know exactly what you're the saying. The night is always dark just before the dawn uh and indeed i think that that is where we are and we're you know we're counting down the days until the anniversary of the sudden departure and it certainly feels like something very heavy is on our way and if you and i are in agreement that this david burton story uh is a cautionary tale of where we could be going with kevin that seems very, very frightening indeed. But I think that this has kind of been the like the arc of the leftovers every season. Uh, every every story that has been told 
in this world, like the grand story of a season. For me, I mean, granted, there's only been two up until now, and then the third could break from tradition. But I think the first two are at least of a piece in the sense that these characters go through awful things and they're dealing with enormous trauma and how to react to that and how to move on and whether they can move on and all of that good stuff. And by good stuff, I mean bad stuff. Um, And they rise up. You know, that's the end of season two. Kevin is shot and he's still able to get back on his feet and he's able to get back to his family and his whole family is together. And that's a happy-ish ending, I think. Uh, you know, season one, uh, everything builds up to the, you know, the, the reminders, the, the, the living dolls or whatever the heck they were called, uh, being planted in all of the houses in Mapleton and it just being so, so, so dark. Uh, and it even ends in some on some notes of light as well there, you know, with the arrival of baby Lily and Kevin and Nora being able to figure things out for that point in time. So that has a happyish ending as well, despite incredibly dark circumstances leading up to it. So I think that that's kind of been the leftovers. Uh, three is a trend, not two, and there will only be three seasons, so we can't really say with certainty or authority that that's where we're going yet. But just because a nuclear bomb has gone off in the South Pacific in this world of the leftovers doesn't mean that the whole world has to be, uh, you know, raised in nuclear hellfire. Like, and I know that that's a, that's a swerve away from what I was saying after the first episode of the season. It's like, all right, apocalypse time. We're heading towards the apocalypse, and it's going to be neat. I don't necessarily think that that's where we're going. Or even if it is where we end up going, I still think that the final notes on a character level for the people that we really care about, we might lose people along the way. That is not off the table. Uh, it's probably even likely. Um, but I think that there will still be recognizable faces from Nora Durst confirmed at this point to potentially others that will be in that final episode and in that final stretch of whatever the future looks like that I think will find some semblance of happiness, even despite the fact that a nuclear bomb just went off. It is interesting because we had a longer discussion about whether that was the last scene between Kevin and Jill. And uh, we didn't really talk about it, but was that the last scene between Kevin and Tommy? Like, we haven't really talked about these things. Well, that's because I don't like to talk about Tommy. Yeah, you just like to look at him. Uh, (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that's fine. I think that the people who really like Tommy Garvey, they really just like to look at him. But it doesn't really come down to a happy ending for Kevin if uh, his happy ending, as we already saw in season one and two, was to be with his family. When Kevin met with Holy Wayne in the diner and Holy Wayne says, I just wish for one thing. And if it comes true, then I'll know that this was real, that I wasn't a fraud, that I wasn't a phony. And we get the impression that Kevin wishes for his family to be back together. And by the end of season one, episode 10, uh, he has a family. He has a new baby with in Lily. He has Nora there and Jill is back with him at their house and everything's like oh well you know what this ending could have been a lot worse this seems like a bittersweet or even happy ending for kevin garvey i will posit that if you take that kevin garvey whose happy ending was his family and especially in including his children uh tommy and jill uh coming together with him uh in various times in season one and season two if that doesn't happen for kevin garvey in season three if kevin garvey is just dunked in the water and murdered, doesn't make it out of the hotel dies in some other fashion because of this fervent belief in kevinism because john and michael feel like they're has to be something because Matt himself is dying and his whole life has thought there needed 
to be a bigger thing to justify everything that's happened. That's not a really happy ending for Kevin Garvey. And I, when you say bittersweet for the characters that we care about, I feel like there's a big circle around Junior. And the, the answer ultimately is we make it a bittersweet ending that doesn't involve him if he's to die. And that's that because he's never going to reunite with his family in that way unless we do some crazy metaphysical shift where we switch to the afterlife or something to that effect. And I just don't know that uh, is going to have a place in this show in the final three episodes. Yeah, there's certainly no reason to think that Damon Lindelof will end the final season of his show with characters meeting in the afterlife. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know why we would think that. It's a really silly thing. It's certainly a really sideways thing to look at, uh, a really sideways way to look at this, and I certainly don't want to do that. I don't want to get lost in, in the discussion here. I'll just say, ultimately, like, that's... That would be fascinating if we had that happen again. I don't see it happening. Uh, I don't see how that comports with the Nora, or the Sarah Durst story. Uh, but maybe it does. Maybe it does. I, I just know that if we're heading toward this ending that doesn't involve Kevin getting the final notes with his children, I do think that that's that. I don't think that that can qualify even as a bittersweet ending for Kevin. I think that's a pretty bitter ending for Kevin. And I think you could have a bitter ending for Kevin and still have a bittersweet ending to the show. Maybe a little more bitter than sweet. But I do think that. There's a possibility there. I don't know. It's fascinating because Sarah Durst, if you believe that that's the future, does end up in Australia. So if she's in Australia, does that mean she stays there and we don't get the sweet with her? Uh, We just get the bitter with her. But Kevin goes back to Miracle, doesn't die. And we get the the half the Lori, the Lori, John, Erica ending where people seem to be uh, okay, better than they were at the end of season two. I don't know when you say state of the leftovers, if we're going to if we're right now in a place where we can do that. I like the idea that this submarine does not in and of itself create a post-apocalyptic scenario that we had discussed. Is there some kind of great incident that causes some terrible thing? And we talked about a flood. You could certainly see, as we're saying in this episode, a scenario where that submarine causes some kind of flood. It seems far more likely that that's representative. It's legit nuclear panic. It's legit end of the world panic. It's legit. uh, It's legit like revelation style let's hasten the apocalypse uh, kind of thing that's happening there I, at least i think so i don't know what to make of the opening credits for this josh we've gone this whole time and not talked about this normally we've seen songs uh, of a different type uh, for each episode except for the first episode of this season here we have what i think is a hebrew prayer or a french prayer one of those two things i think it's a prayer being whispered by i presume the french submarine guy and the reason that's I my presume assumption that, as well yeah yeah you hear that beep in the background right like you hear the nuclear submarine noise throughout the credits and it so continues it, past the credits and it continues past the credits so this is this guy's final whatever it is like it's his final incantation before he goes and does exactly what he goes and does which by the way josh let's talk about it we didn't really talk about this nearly enough besides uh the hbo loving their orgies part hbo and the leftovers loving their sonic screwdrivers and why did that guy need to be naked i wanted to ask you that exact question is like what what ha- listen why? to us listen to us complaining about gratuitous nudity on an hbo show Josh. no I'm, i just don't understand like what maybe he just wanted to maybe it was his birthday and he just wanted to wear the appropriate attire uh <laughs> you know. first you have to know thyself and then adorn accordingly yeah right that's exactly it and maybe it was i don't know like i'm probably going to get arrested after this or maybe even like killed and i want to be like really comfortable before that and like i'm just gonna be naked. 
I certainly it's it's also possible because he has to go through those like gymnastics, the yoga pose. Uh, you should certainly go to yoga when he is like trying to turn both keys at once to open the door to get the trigger. The so good may- news is, is like when when you and I have to like destroy the world, like we're going to be simpatico about this. We're not going to have to like stretch across the room with our with our hands and our feet like we'll just both be there to turn the keys together. Hundo, yeah, one hundred percent. We're pretty close to that, I think. But it doesn't matter. Like, uh, like I think that. Can I request like, clothes? Let's do. Let's like like sweats. Sweats? Yeah, like sweatpants, like pajama clothes. Yeah, pajama clothes. I'm in for that. I'm in for that. Can You're I, out on what sweats. About, what about costumes? The costumes are fine. What can I dress like? Can I dress like a lioness? Yeah, I suppose. If that's, if <laughs> can that's I dress like Frasier? And I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna tell you until the moment whether it's Frasier the lion or Frasier, or Frasier Crane. Crane. Yeah, yes. I was. I'll, no, no. You you go as Frasier the lion. I will go as uh, Kelsey Grammer as Beast from the X Men movies, and then we will both be kind of lionish, and that's like my Frasier impression. Or we'll just give a, a little casual Frasier shout out, and I'll go as Scrambled Eggs, and you can go as Toss Salad. Okay. That was also something that was happening at that orgy, by the way. Um, I will say, ultimately, that uh, that I think he just needed to be naked to stretch out. Like, I think that's all there was to it. I think he needed to make that stretch. He knew he couldn't make it with his crazy subsuit on. So he had to take the subsuit off, and he had to do it nude. It also is reminiscent of Senior running naked, uh, which we only see briefly in a flashback in season one, when Kevin Jr. is talking to somebody at a door, and they're like, hey, uh, Garvey, didn't you go crazy? And then we see a flash of senior running naked uh, throughout the the town causing havoc uh and he's like no that was my dad like so there is a flashback to a senior running nude uh, and running amok and we see the same thing happening with uh, the nuclear submarine guy uh but i think it's just so he could make the stretch i really think that's all there is to yeah it. that makes sense that makes sense but i think also in and just to be serious about it for a second i think something that's fun about it is that you know we have him you know we have this man who just strips down and is butt naked and is launching a international incident you know by turning the key here and firing off that bomb uh so you have that and that kind of mirrors in its own way i feel like when kevin is going to the international assassin hotel he arrives via a bathtub and he is also in his birthday suit and he's about to embark on you know an international assassin tour Uh, so, so i think that there's a little bit of symmetry there yeah, you emerge. You emerge fully nude in that in that realm. Ready uh, for war. Ready for war. Right. Ready to adorn thyself. And that guy, all he puts on his neck are two keys, and those two keys are what he really needs to do what he needs to do. So cool. he actually takes his clothes off. Right. He takes his uniform off. The thing that he's adorned with. That the way that he's dressed to identify or represent his profession. He strips himself bare of his duties, his uniform, and he's now just fully in the nude, like Prometheus. Uh, ready to emerge uh, and do some damage there. So I think you're right. There's a lot of connections to the way the clothing incidents play out in International Assassin as well. Um, what did you think about Matt and Laurie, or Laurie, uh, Matt and Laurie in this episode? Laurie really not thrilled with the whole Book of Kevin thing, uh, and I guess she finally took Kevin's advice at the end of that phone call, asked John about the stupid book he wrote. Uh, it seems like he, she asked, and she got an answer, and now she's going to Australia to save her ex-husband because all you schmoes, you 
you know, decided that my ex-husband is your messiah, and I've seen that guy look for hours for a wine glass when it was in, like, the one obvious place, and I know that he poops four times a day, and this guy is not the messiah, and you are all terrible people for doing this to him. He's crazy and having a psychotic break. I mean, this was really man of science versus man of faith territory. Very much so. That's exactly what I wrote in my notes. I love that. I love that, Matt recognized right away that Laurie wasn't telling the whole story, that she wasn't being honest and truthful, right? That there was this thing where he recognized that she was leaving the Evie part out of the equation. He didn't know that that was part of it, but he knew she wasn't telling the whole story. Like, why do you have to come all of a sudden? You have to come with us? And thank God she's coming, by the way, because the three of them, if they go and meet up with Senior and Grace, the Kevin murderer, it's just going to be a slaughter. We need Laurie there, as I've said, to create an interesting dynamic. And that dynamic you do need a skeptic and that dynamic is fully on display here as you're pointing out when they're on the plane they have that great discussion Uh, kevin has misspelled tattoos josh that's pretty tough why no forever Uh, i don't know ultimately like what's going on with kevin and his misspelled tattoos maybe we need an episode dedicated to kevin getting those tattoos but uh, it is great because during her during her as we remarked during her highest moments of blasphemy about kevinism the plane does hit some crazy turbulence and matt does give that knowing glance and then there are those scenes between the two of them later I think it's fascinating that John is in the middle of this and Matt tries to bring John into it saying, John, you were burning people's houses down like you were doing all of these things. What happened to that guy? And uh, and John is like, uh, well, you know, like uh, he's basically saying like Lori is what happened. She helped talk me through this. And then Matt's calling that psycho babble, which, by the way, we determine is science uh, as part of a society. Matt is calling psycho babble. And, and it is a faith that Matt is pushing. So I like that that is present throughout. I like that John is representative of that. I do like that John is not a full convert. It sounds more like he's agnostic to a certain extent. Like he's definitely more agnostic, agnostic than atheist at this point, even if he's not a true believer. I do really, really like that aspect of it and how John plays in the middle of that. For a character who was almost on equal footing with senior with, with Kevin Jr. in season two... John has taken a little bit of a backseat and doesn't have, we don't have the standalone Murphy's episodes that we had from last season. And I think that's because we have eight, but I think that it's interesting to see John in the middle of this because it is part of his growth that he's not the guy who is so anti-spiritualism that he's burning people's houses down and shooting people, but he's certainly not all, all in. I think that there's that, that great scene between John and Matt when, Matt is like, you believe me, right? And John's like, yeah, sure, sure, I believe you. Like, He isn't like fully on board, but he's saying, like, yeah, Matt, I'm with you. So I think that that's fascinating, and I think that Lori playing a role in all of that because she's all the way out on the other end. But even she, we know, has searched for her purpose and her meaning. And so her search despite the fact that it leads her to a different place than Matt, despite the fact that it leads her to more science and more discussion, her search is very similar to Matt's in that she herself went into the guilty remnant, which is a form of worship or a form of faith or call it spirituality without religion. Uh, She herself was doing this in season two where she had to have a purpose. And now she's doing it in season three, as we see with the psychic work. So she herself has always uh, been striving for some meaning or value. She's just taken a very different path than Matt. So I think it's fascinating to have both of those characters 
at opposites with each other when they're so very similar at their cores. Yeah, and I think uh, just to take it back to John for a second, because I agree, and Kevin Carroll was such a highlight of season two, you know, getting to know that character and yes. watching him work, it, it was really, really spectacular. So, so far, he's been, you know, not center stage. You know, he has been on stage frequently, but he is a supporting player. That being said, and I do agree, I think it's a time issue. I think, unfortunately, there's just not as much time to play with in this final season of The Leftovers, so some characters are getting a little bit short-shrifted. But I think even that isn't a fair statement, because I think that there's been a lot of really great, subtle character work on John Murphy, especially. Uh, You know, even if it's happening a little bit left of center, I think that there's been some really great stuff. Like, can you imagine the John Murphy of season two hearing about this Evie thing, about Kevin is in Australia and he saw Evie and I'm your wife and I kept that from you. Can you imagine that guy having the calm reaction that the, that the John of season three has? Uh, no, where, that's a great call. You know, where he's just yeah. kind of like, I totally get why you didn't tell me that. And I'm, you know, obviously upset to hear that. That's a very upsetting thing to hear because you're talking about my very likely deceased daughter. Uh, But, you know, uh, I understand why you withheld that information because it's very, very painful stuff. And Matt's like, oh, God, I'm an asshole. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that was great. Right. Because it was, as you said, it's the fact that John Murphy saying that that really bowled Matt over. And Matt was like, ah, yes, uh, I'm going to go get some sleep in the infirmary. Yeah. Like, it really did bowl him over. And I think you're right. Like That was because it was John Murphy. But I don't want to give any short shrift to John Murphy, but it is, you cannot, it is inextric- he's inextricably linked this point, at this point with Laurie. That, that, that John Murphy's change is attributable, and he attributes it in this episode to Laurie. And as I said, Matt calls it psychobabble, But I think that Michael makes a really interesting point about all this, and I think it's great to also see this a little bit through the eyes of Michael. Michael says, like, oh, well, you know, we're we're disciples. There's no reason she can't be, which I think is an interesting thing to track. Is that the prophecy of Michael? Do we see a scenario where Lori herself buys into Kevinism, Josh? Yeah, um, no. Despite the fact that what she knows, what she knows about his bathroom habits and tattoos and wine glass located. I don't think that that's real. I, I don't think that Lori is going to get on board with this ever. I don't I can't imagine. I can't imagine the situation. I mean, I guess she could watch Kevin die and come back to life. But like there's scientific explanations for that stuff, too. Like, I think that what she talked about with Kevin earlier in the episode of like, I lived with that guy for as long as I lived with him. And there's no way there's just no way. So I can't I can't imagine that she's ever going to be swayed. Do you think that we're building towards a moment where Lori's going to become a believer? I'm not sure. I was kind of thinking out loud with that because Michael says it and because we have Lori and and Matt both searching for meaning. Uh, It took Lori to the guilty remnant. It took Lori to fighting the guilty remnant and trying to give people something new. It took Lori to Miracle, Texas. Like it took Lori to these places where she's now giving people fake psychic readings to seemingly make them feel better and not for money. So we've seen her doing the same things that Matt has without assigning the spiritual value. And we've seen her through her profession vest a ton fully in science, right? And even when Kevin is at the, the depths of his psychotic break last episode with seeing fake Evie, she's the one who says there's no chance it's Evie. I'm going to pull you back off the curb here. I'm going to tell you what to do. She's giving him the science talk down. And she is even coming up with what she believes are reasons for this to happen. But she herself, take the science out of it and you you give it the science-faith dichotomy. I think what you can say is this show 
has always been a show about the squaring away, the areas of zone, zonal, like the Venn diagram overlap between science and faith, or between things that, that you could assign both values to, or the things where there is a hybrid, like the, uh, the concept of an axis mundi, where there is a belief that, just like Miracle Texas, there are these places on Earth where the science is just a little bit different, like the rules of science don't apply in the same way. And sometimes that sort of thing, it seems crazy, and we don't believe it until we learn more about it. Uh, we have things like the Bermuda Triangle, which we assign like a spiritual or paranormal value, which can be assigned scientific value, or maybe they can't, and it depends on how you look at it. So I'm fascinated with the fact that Lori and Matt uh, are diametrically opposed in terms of the way that they lens things, but they're completely the same in terms of their search in looking through those lenses. And so I think that if you look at Lori Garvey, I don't think we've seen enough this season when you say we're on a path. I don't think we've seen enough this season to see that Lori is unhappy or unsettled. We saw a lot more of that with season two of Lori Garvey. If we were still seeing that with Lori Garvey in this season, I would be a lot more inclined to say we're going to see some true believerism out of Lori. It's actually going to be Kevinism, which is her final eureka light bulb moment that's the moment it's all going to happen for her and we just haven't seen that struggle for her in this season even though we saw it last season totally um all right is there anything for this episode that we haven't hit tonight that you want to hit tonight before we get into the feedback show <laughs> well can we talk about how matt goes into the water and he comes out dressed like chuck mcgill from better call saul <laughs> he kind of does yeah, yeah i can see that i could totally yeah. see that now jimmy i just jumped into the water to save that man like yeah. uh yeah i don't know i don't know exactly what was going on with that space blanket i thought that was great i uh, gotta keep matt healthy he jumped into the water there is there any way that matt gets out of this thing alive or do we now have our character like we now have our main character who's definitely not going to make it to the end of the leftovers fascinating that matt himself has ch- his face down death and walked his way back right we saw it happen at least once uh, or at least he's discussed it happening once in the context of the series he was waylaid in season two his passes were stolen he could have easily been uh, beaten to death at that moment he was stoned in the head in season one uh, he's had some brushes for sure uh, that matt jameson so maybe he also is teflon when it comes to death but I feel like that that we will see this character. Uh, we will find out that this character does not survive the series. Whether that's through the future with uh, Sarah Durst, I could see it being something that's confirmed, like, oh, Matt did pass away. Uh, or if it's something we see happen on screen. What What I'm not sure about is... How much of a time jump, how much is a time jump going to occupy the storytelling in this? Is the final episode going to be all time jump? If that's the case, uh, then I don't know how we see Matt die on screen. Um, If we only have a a partial time jump, I could see enough storytelling. It just Matt doesn't seem at death's door right now is what I'm what was what I'm getting at. Right. He's bleeding a lot. He's bleeding a lot from his nose, uh, but his physical, his other otherwise physical well-being looks okay. Uh, do, do we know? If, I mean, we just don't know what level his illness is at, uh, and it's hard to represent. Yes, he is bleeding a lot. Could that be from some medicine he's taking? We don't know. So I just don't read Matt Jameson as at death's door for crying out loud. He uh, got the drop on a large man, hit him with an axe, put him in a wheelchair, dragged him, jumped into the water, got out. He's doing a lot of things for a guy who is on death's door. So maybe he is, and I'm not reading that correctly, but it just doesn't seem like that to me. So I think if we do see a dead Matt uh, in this series, it's going to be confirmed with some sort of time jump. It's not going to happen in the context of the next three days on this show, Josh. 
if you if you had to give it a yes or no though like if it was like your life depended on the answer being correct uh and you're not going to get to come back from the international assassin hotel if you get the answer wrong uh do you think matt lives or does matt die if you just have by the end of the series yeah matt is matt is is dead yeah i I would agree i would i would tend to agree i still think that you know bittersweet happy-ish ending could be possible with a dead matt jameson unfortunately well Uh, yeah i mean the the best thing that could happen hey he would would, he would get to go and be with uh his maker you know like there there could be (laughs) finally finally meet god in that in that chair the real one you know that there could be something there well and i'm not making light of this uh it's fascinating right that we have matt pushing around a wheelchair in this episode when he did this with Mary for so long and when he spoke to Mary and similarly got no response for so long he's used to having somebody in a wheelchair across from him and wanting to throw the world at them and not getting anything real back in return. Yeah that's a really good point. So this is a Matt who I think if you talk about a bittersweet ending if Matt dies with the knowledge that Kevinism maybe had some heft to it, like there was something to it, like if we get to a point where some other incident happens with Kevin and Matt witnesses it, because he hasn't really witnessed the first, the he was privy to the Holy Wayne part of it, but he wasn't in the bathroom. He didn't see all that play out. Uh, he was privy to some of the stuff with Patty and that he helped her dad, he helped uh, Kevin dig her up, but we didn't really see everything that happened uh, before that with Matt. Like Matt wasn't there. Matt certainly wasn't there when Kevin emerged from the ground or did any of the stuff he did with Virgil and Michael and Matt wasn't there when John shot Kevin in the chest so I think that Matt hasn't seen these moments of Kevinism it could be great if Matt sees something that he interprets as Kevinism and that's something he could die with knowing that he had touched the divine on his lips he could die knowing that that had happened and that would be a good ending for Matt Jameson even though it might be wrong even though it might be him interpreting something it might allow him to die with a degree of happiness for sure all right well let's end this podcast with a degree of happiness I thought that we did a great job here Antonio fun podcast tonight yeah, fun podcast tonight. I recommend. Uh, I thought if you go back and look at the uh, the way this episode began, if you want to suggest an alternate title uh, credits song, I think God's Song by Randy Newman is not a bad choice. If you haven't heard that song or you want to go look at the lyrics of that song, uh, it's very much about how the idea of uh, the God that a lot of people worship uh you can interpret a lot of things negatively or you can interpret them positively and you're not always going to get an answer. I think it's very prescient or very on point with the struggles of Matt Jameson, Uh, more so than the prayer at the beginning, although I don't know the specific words of that prayer. I would have gone with Frasier the Sensuous Lion by Sarah Vaughn, which plays in the middle of the episode. Yes, and I love Sarah Vaughn. Uh, and so I recognized her voice. I had no idea that uh, Frasier was a real thing, but now I'm guessing that Frasier was oh, a real thing. Yeah, that's not just made up for the show. Uh, yeah. I, I yeah. did a little bit of a, of a dive into that. You guys could do that as well. Uh, the Frasier story is legit. I don't think that there are a lot of sex cults that are built around Frasier the Lion, but I could Listen, be even totally if wrong about that. Even if there's one, that, like, <laughs> then, then, it's, then it's achieved more in its life, uh, the Frasier the Lion story, than most of us ever will. I would just love to find yeah, I would just love to find out how that wound up on the show. Like there've been a lot of moments like that this season of like uh you know, I, I think Lindelof has talked about this in the interviews of like you want to have a Monday morning where you read about what happened on the leftovers the night before and it sounds like it makes absolutely no sense, but when within the context of the episode it makes a lot of sense. Like the Mark Lynn Baker very dr- dramatic scene, you're hearing about that the next morning if it's out of context. You're like, What? And I think that the Fraser thing is very similar to that. But I don't know. I would just 
to be a fly on the wall of that writer's room, man, <laughs> they, they, they threw a lot of weird stuff at the wall this season, and most of it's sticking for me at least. Yeah, it is I don't fascinating. want to talk about sticking things to walls in this episode. No, and, and I'll, I'll wrap this just by saying, like, you, you point out all of those things, uh, and I just, we have David Burton. As I said, the parable of David Burton, if there is one, seems to be, don't make up a story without thinking about what the consequences of making up that story would be. And as you get into the talk of The Leftovers, you cannot analyze this show without thinking about Damon Lindelof and the Lindeloffing and Damon Lindelof himself creating a show where he made up a story and they had some good elements to it and it really got into the popular consciousness, but maybe they didn't, they weren't ready to deal with everything that came attendant with that story. And so David Burton himself carrying around a card with, yes, this is the case. No, it's not. It's just answers, which is all anyone ever asked for Damon Lindelof in the law in Lost. Just give us these answers. That's all people were asking for. So I think it's fascinating that the parable of David Burton is alive and well, both with how we look at Kevinism and Kevin Garvey and how we look at just this story as a whole, which is not occurring in a vacuum, which because if it did, like uh, that would be weird, right? Because vacuums are small. We've talked about this. Yes. But it, it is uh, there's a lot of the Lindelof personal elements of what's going on here. And you cannot evaluate the show without thinking about the person that's writing it and the person that's in charge of birthing it, uh, whether he calls himself a midwife or whether he's in the room every time like he is the person who's behind this. And I think it's fascinating that we have a character who people are just demanding answers from such that he's just carrying around a card with answers on it. Like that is, that is as Lindelof of a moment uh, as I think that a personal moment, I think that you can get into there. I mean, I wonder Josh, if David Burton is on Twitter. I doubt David Burton is on anything anymore. Yeah, no, no. Now he's on pavement, uh, eaten by lions. So that's fine. Yeah. All right. What do we have a hashtag for this episode? Oh, my God. I feel like if we do, it's like unusable because. Yeah, good point. (laughs) Maybe we're hashtag free on this one. Nothing's nothing's coming readily to mind. What if we just say hashtag vigorous hashtag? Oh, vigorous (laughs) vigorous hashtag (laughs) is fine if you want to give us that. Uh, And we will we will leave there with that happy ish ending. Uh, so you can tweet that our way. I'm Jeez. at Round Howard. Antonio couldn't is, resist. You just couldn't resist. Antonio, dirty, dirty Antonio is at AC Mazzaro. Uh, get your feedback in. We're going to look to record that probably on Wednesday morning. Uh, postshowrecaps.com slash feedback is our feedback form. And our email address is leftovers at postshowrecaps.com. Please subscribe to the podcast if you have not done so already at postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes or postshowrecaps.com slash feed slash leftovers your honest reviews and ratings are super helpful for us as we like to get discovered by as many new listeners as humanly possible even though we are very rapidly reaching the end of the line here Uh, this podcast has a shelf life yeah so i mean honestly like it doesn't really matter like you know you can give us a bad review it's fine no don't do that please don't do it please don't do it I, I can't. My fragile ego. Could yeah, that's really it. what would be. <laughs> I'd have to go. I'd have to go join the cult of uh, Lionisis or whatever that was called, the Fraser cult. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, very fun show tonight, Antonio. Really enjoyed talking this one through with you, and can't wait to do a little bit more of that later this week when we once again start talking about episode five of season three. With your feedback as well, you guys have been awesome with your feedback all season long, and I'm sure it will be no different for this episode. So another fun podcast coming your way in just a few days. Uh, also, some Better Call Saul action. I'm sure is happening this week with you and Rob Antonio? Yes, uh, we're, we're, it's a special Sound of Music episode. Better call Salzburg.
<laughs> that's right. That's right. So keep an ear out for that. The uh, the hills are alive with the sound of Antonio and Rob speaking into your ears. So that will be very fun as well. Uh, Antonio, anything else? No, man. Uh, I just I would when it comes to feedback, I would love to hear what people think if Lori could possibly uh, become a convert. If we see any, if we're missing anything there, uh, I'm sure that people are thinking. If there are things that we're missing, uh, they're thinking about them now, and I would love to hear them. So, if it's possible that Lori could convert to Kevinism, what would it take? I'd love to hear that as part of the feedback. Totally, totally. All right, uh, great stuff, and we will talk to you all again in just a few days. Take care. Goodbye.